What's up, everybody? Joe Bonamassa here with another episode of Live at Nerdville. Ladies and gentlemen, this man <laughs> needs no introduction. You all know who oh. he is. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee for his work with Deep Purple. Should be in the Hall of Fame for Trapeze and should be in the <laughs> Hall of Fame as a solo artist. I love this man, my friend and yours, Mr. Glenn Hughes. How oh, are you doing, Glenn? Doing great to great, see you. Yeah. Lovely to see you from a distance, by the way, but good to see you. We are socially distancing. We're we at are. least 2,700 miles apart on this I video. know. Can you believe it? Yes. So how are you doing? How you, have you been laying low? I, I love the new song. Thank you. I've been laying low. Um, you must be going mental with your laying low. I know. Um, I've been doing a lot of walking and a lot of wrong songwriting. I've been doing even more writing I've ever done. So it keeps me busy. Keeps me busy. Yeah, and that's great. You know, I mean... I've had a weird transition from life on the road to life in semi-retirement. I, I I haven't been playing. You know me. I live in a house of guitars, you know? You do. But I, I find that I, I've decided that I'm like, as opposed to a guitar player, I'm an entertainer. It's like if I don't have a stage to entertain, it's hard to like kind of just sit there with the guitar and well, go, okay, let, let, me, let me play again, you know? I'm the same, feel exactly the same way. 100%. I did. I did break out one of our old songs for our telethon last week. I, I played songs uh, from my resting place off of BCC4 oh, on, the, on the acoustic guitar. By the time I got done recording it, one take, my hand was so like <laughs> tired. I'm like, I'm like, I'm so. Anyway, thank you for doing this. Um, I want to talk. I want to do the non-Glenn Hughes interview. You've been interviewed. Thousands of times. And by the uh, way, everybody, uh, Joe and I had not, we had no pre call on this. I don't know what he's going to talk about. Yep. So go at it, Joe. All right. So the first thing I want to ask you is because I've spent many hours writing songs with you, you have a very deep knowledge and a very deep appreciation for the blues. And where did that start? Because I asked everybody, like, you know, because we all start someplace, mm -hmm. you know, whether you end up. Filling stadiums or, or playing clubs, everybody starts off yeah. the same way. In their bedroom with a record player, some mm -hmm. inspiration, and a guitar yes. or bass. Yes. How did you get your start? So, you know, being a 60s kid for me, I mean, you know, this is when I was 11 or 12. I started, I was playing the trombone. I was named after Glenn Miller, as you know. Yeah. And then I picked up the guitar in 1963-ish. And... Um, I saw the Beatles and the Stones, but I heard the Stones playing songs. They weren't their own songs. They were some other guys' songs, which, of course, were blues artists. So I learned playing or got into the blues because of the Rolling Stones. I'm a Brit British man, so um, most of us were, some of us were didn't realize where the music was originating from, you know. So I just thought the Stones write all those songs, but actually they didn't. So I came through it that way. Then I was in a band at school called the Hooker Lees, after John Lee Hooker. So we started to play covers of the Stones, playing covers of, of, of right. the original. So I came through the door that way. And so I, you know, a British man learning the blues from the other British artists like the Who or the Stones. Yeah, it's amazing because everybody has a conduit. I came, my, my conduit was through the British as yes. well. So I was playing covers and still am of, I was playing covers of the covers of the originals, <laughs> you know. And it's it just one of those things where it's just everybody, everybody is introduced to the music, you know, by a different host. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, I mean, you had a band um, called Trapeze. Yes. 
And my babies. The, you were in a, also in a band called Finders Keepers, I read. And I so was almost, and, and, it, and unless, unless the internet's wrong, which how can it be? Everything on the internet is completely accurate and, and vetted perfectly. Um, what made you decide to go trapeze versus finders keepers? Because I think you overlapped. You were in them at the same time. You were um, in the position when you were a kid. Okay. There was like two kind of top bands, or three, Slade were from Wolverhampton, a band called the Montanas, and a band called Finders Keepers. And the manager of Montanas and Finders Keepers thought it would be a great idea to sort of get a few guys from the Montanas and a few guys from Finders Keepers to morph it into what would become trapeze. Right. You know, so that that was the start of it. And, and we were at that time, the first trapeze show was a five piece, as you know. And we basically were on the Moody Blues label and that Moody was a very melodic, you know, hippie band. And we started to have that five part harmonies and it was very Beach Boyish, but with the rock side to it. And we came through that element. And what what was the uh, impetus of turning trapeze into the more like power trio? Yeah, very you um, know like almost hard rock. I mean, it was the, the beginnings of hard rock at that point. Well, as you know, and, and if anybody that doesn't know, in trapeze number one, version one, I was not the lead singer. I was a more of a background singer that sort of found his way. Uh, the 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 lead singer wanted me to sing more with him and the, the manager of the band. So I said. I had no, I didn't know I was going to be the guy I am right now, the voice of rock, if you will. But, you know, I started to sort of sing more and more as we went along. And the album, you could hear my, I did sing once, two songs on the first record. But the, after about a year, we did a Moody, Moody Blues tour of the UK. And uh, after about a year, the band had a meeting without me. Uh, the Mel and Dave, by the way, had a meeting with the manager. Uh, they were pushing me to become the lead singer. I had no idea that was happening right. at all. Actually asked for that. The band and, and Tony Perry, the manager, um, the, you know, Zeppelin and Cream and all that era and Hendrix Trio stuff. It was, we, they, we, I guess we were all listening to that music more than, than anything else. And um, the band, Mel and Dave at the time, thought it would be better for me to lead the charge. And I was so grateful about that. And, you know, I mean, it's one of those things where a lot of times people who become great frontmen are are thrust into the spotlight. I think of your story with Trapeze. I think of Phil, I think of Phil Collins coming out from behind the drums to oh to to, yeah. you know, to front Genesis after Peter Gabriel. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's one of those things. And we we covered Medusa on Black Country Communion. Thank Volume. you. And I got you, to you call that, but by the way, Joe called that one. I didn't call that. Joe called that. And and you were gracious enough to loan me Mel Galley's guitar to record that song. And I'll never forget recording that song again with you and Mel Galley's guitar with Jason and Derek and everybody at. Uh, we did it at Shangri La Studios. We and, did. And and like I said, it was to me, you know. Being in the room with you guys and recording, I'm like, oh, this is what it was like. This is what it was like when like a real rock band just kicks off and you just you have no you have no choice but to hang on. I have no. a question. I was I and I've never asked you in the many years. We've we've known each other almost uh, 12, 13 years now or more, 15 years. And I've never asked you this. Who approached you from Deep Purple about joining? Okay, Trapeze were doing a 
whiskey run of three or four nights in 1972. And unbeknownst to me, I did not know they were not on the list or anything, but I saw Ian Pace there one night and the next night I saw John Lord and I believe that the next night or something like that, I, I saw more and I just thought they were, they were digging the band and, you know, I was so naive and so young and so fresh, if you will. I was overwhelmed that they were, you know, just recorded all that great music that are from Machine Head and stuff like that and, they were right in the way, big time. Um, and I was so blown away that they were digging the band, you know. But I had no idea they were checking me out at all. This went on for about a good nine months. And then they sh then, then Ricky and John came down to see Trapeze at the Marquee in, in early 73. Still didn't know they were checking me out. I thought they right. were just really in they They didn't mention anything about taking the place of anyone but things got a little bit heated in may of 73 where uh trapeze were on final tour and we were playing um, on the east coast and went a couple of days off and lordy called me to see if i'd like to go to see them at the felt forum in new york at the madison square garden so i, I flew in to see them with mark two purple sat on the and I kind of got a feeling something, what's going on here? I really didn't know. No one had mentioned anything about joining the band until the next day. We had uh, breakfast at the Essex House Marriott on the, on the park. And uh, management and band, well, band that in the room was John, Ian and, and, and Richie. They asked me if I'd like to play, join and play the bass guitar. Right. And I said, one side of my brain said, what? And the other side went, I said, yeah. And they said, well, we've asked Paul Richards. One side of my brain went, oh, shit. I love Who doesn't? Then I said to myself quietly, wouldn't it be interesting if I could actually we sing together or something, you know, maybe, you know, together, you know, that quietly sing that. So. Wow. That's amazing. And when you first got together with them, was Coverdale involved or were you just, the no. sing and you were just a this singer and a bass player and they were like looking to replace two people with, you know, Roger yes. and Ian. Yeah. So if I remember Joe, this would have been, May, when I went to the Essex house, um, I said yes. Uh, I, thinking, Paul, and I didn't know about um, Bad Company, in fact. But in, in what was going on, um, after I said yes, I didn't just say yes to, to, to play with Paul. Uh, I, he's a good friend of mine. But um, I, I felt that with Smoke on the Water riding the top of the charts and, and Machine Head doing so well, and, and here they're, they're asking me to, to join this juggernaut uh, of rock, uh, thinking, you know, a little voice inside me going, maybe maybe you should do this, Glenn. Maybe it's time right. to branch out. Something different. Killed me to leave the band. Killed me to leave Tweet. Oh, my God, it was so awful. And by the way, 
a couple of weeks afterwards, uh, in all the melody making, new music like the best, you know, they said, oh, Paul Rogers is forming Bad Company, so that went out the window. So now I'm basically in the band. They've announced it to all the magazines, I'm in the band. And uh, so we set out looking for uh, a new singer to replace Ian Gillen. Right. And you found a guy named David Coverdale. Yes. We, we'd, heard, we'd heard a couple of hundred um, rolls of, of, of demo tapes, and they weren't fantastic, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we'd heard this fellow from the Northeast um, singing, uh, you've lost that loving feeling in that very deep, rich mm-hmm. voice he has down there. Uh, who doesn't like that voice of David's when it's rich and deep and it's such a beautiful tone. But Blackmore fell in love. Hang on, I'll put my earphones in because my dogs. Blackmore fell in love with that baritone voice. And so we asked him to come down to re, to sort of, I wouldn't call it an audition, but it was, to come down to London to um, give it a whirl. And the rest is history. And, you know, one of the things about that band was how immediately classic it was, that lineup. It was perfectly cast. You know what I mean? I mean, because at that point you were, you had this already, you had the band that did Hush. You had the Mach Mach 2 band, which was, you know, Smoke on the Water and they were exploding in their arena band. And then you guys come in and literally seamlessly, like, Take take this band into a, you know the the third phase of its career, arguably its most successful, and you know one of my favorite shows of all time, just as a live video connoisseur, is your performance at Cal Jam '74 mm. with um, was it um, ELP and you guys right, were right. the headliners, and you must have been like you know from a kid from Wolverhampton, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah, like. And you're on the jet, you show up to California, you know, it must have been, it, you, you've lived a perspective that most artists cannot, you can explain it all day long, but there's a feeling, there's an inertia that, that you have lived that most artists will never, ever achieve or have that. And no. so, what was it like when you got off the plane into the limousine and showed up to Cal Jam and saw that sea of people waiting to hear you play? I mean, what was that feeling? It was, it was incredible. I mean, we landed the day before so we could do a sound check the night before. Um, and we'd heard there was like a couple hundred thousand tickets sold. Um, that's a lot of people for anyone. Yeah. And people were lining up the, the night we were rehearsing and, and doing the sound check and it was a great vibe and everybody was in a great shape uh, landing on the on that jet that private jet I mean who, come on now <laughs> from Wolverhampton and one minute I'm playing you know in clubs with trapeze and the next thing I'm on a, this huge jet uh, with these guys and and uh, I'd work my tail off to get to that point um, but again leaving trapeze was not easy and then you know the, um, the I'm sure you've heard the story show day where uh, California Jam was the first ever festival on the planet to run an hour early. Things were, you know, we were sort of on the, our contract said we would go on at sun, at sundown. Exactly. Yeah. Whatever time that was, it was April. Of, so I don't know, maybe 
I don't know, six thirty or something. Seven o'clock, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so and it's it's like five fifteen or something and Sabbath had just finished and now like we were and Richie locked himself in his trailer. And he wasn't coming out. Right. He was not coming out. And the, then the Federals and the fire marshals uh, told him they were gonna come in somehow and get him out. Um Richie so, strikes me as the kind of guy if you want him to get, if you want to get him to not do something, you tell him he has to do something. Yeah. You know, he, he, he's a contrarian, you know, he just, he is He's like, you have to come out here and play. No, I'm going to lock myself in a room. He's he, he, I've never met him, but he's he, he, he was not in any way, shape or form freaked out or twisted. He just said calmly, I, I'm just not going to go on mate. <laughs> and, um, all of us others in our own trailer uh, were um, ready to rock, if you will. We weren't happy to go on there in, in the daylight. Again, the contract said night times. The first band with lighting production, blah, blah, you know the story. Right. So that's what we wanted. Um, and it was televised because, I mean, you guys, this was a big moment for the band in America. I mean, it, it solidified the band's position as the premier heavy rock act. It, it was. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if you know this, Joe, but there were around, it was over 300,000 because 100,000 people jumped over the gates. So there must have been over 300,000 there. So to to walk onto that stage and, I, you know, <laughs> to see a, a, a sea of people, you know, was incredible. You know, I, I asked um, John Oates, the other day about this because um, he played Live Aid in 85. Yes. And, you know, it's, it goes down as, you know, they were a band from Philadelphia. It goes down in the, that band's history, Hall & Oates, is they were headlining Live Aid. It was the, one of the greatest moments yeah. at the height of their yeah. power. And I, what I always ask people that have been involved in, in these big, iconic shows is I know from my experience, the gigs, like my first gig at the Albert Hall, I thought I was shit. Until I heard the tape, <laughs> you know, and my gig at Red Rocks in 2014, I thought, oh, God, boy, I blew that. You know, how did you when you get off when you got off stage at Cal Jam, knowing how good it is now? I mean, you mm. just listened to it. It was like it was right. a everybody, everybody was on fire. Right. Mm. And mm. did you guys feel like you had a good show? Because sometimes um, you can't judge in the moment. Well, Joe, um, we went on anyway. Uh, we, I mean, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. If you, Blackmore was not happy at all. Hence the smashing of the camera. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were told by one of the crew that something strange was going to happen. But we did not know he was going to pull his road. He was going to pull petrol all over his his his, his apps. Right, Pet petrol. <laughs> Gas. Oh my God. And he's going to light the amps on fire. I mean, if you look at that and slow down that video, you'll notice that it, it whoosh, it was like, yeah. wow. It was unbelievable and scary to boot. Yes, because it's like, you, you, you can't do that. Not on stage. I mean, the, no. Like, but uh, he, he was uh, calculated, if you will. Uh, but the smashing of the camera, which the or the band had to pay back a lot of money for that, uh, the, Richie did not like anyone whose peripheral left. 
A- anybody, any, any, anybody, kept nothing. And the guy kept saying, give me a shot. Come on now. And that's when he took the strat off and rammed it. I mean, come on. That was great theater, wasn't it? That was great theater. It was, I think it was live on it was ABC television. ABC. It was ABC television. And, I mean, it's, it, it forever goes down in, like, you know, because rock and roll now – in some cases, has gotten away from its its rebellion. It's dangerous. Yes, it's you know it's it's taking your Stratocaster and jamming it through your amp or jamming it into yeah. a camera. It's like it's like that to me. It's still that's what makes it exciting and visceral and and you know yeah. what it was. I have a question. Um, how did Tommy Bolin get on your radar? What was the when when did you first hear Tommy play the guitar? You know. Um, you know, Pacey had heard uh, Spectrum from Billy okay. Cobham. Um, I had not heard it. I had not, I mean, in fact, to tell you the truth. Uh, but Pacey was a big Cobham fan. Who wasn't? And then we, I had, we all had dinner, well, you know, at, at Ian's house, and he played us Spectrum, and, he, and we heard Stratus. <clears throat> and we were blown away. You know, we were completely blown away. The other, there's, there was two people we kind of, I hate the word audition, but we auditioned Clem Clemson mm-hmm. from Humble Pie. Uh, I'm sure you know Clem. Yeah. Uh, and it, 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 I loved Clem. He stayed at my house and it was great, but he didn't have the vibe of charisma Blackmore or anyone else had. When Tommy walked into the room at uh, SIR, I, I had no idea he was going to have the green, purple, orange, yellow hair. So mm-hmm. right away, that was a... And then putting his... Just the way he put his strap on, I'm going, okay. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I just knew that... I, of course, I'd heard Stratus and I'd heard the album with Billy Cobham and I just knew from the vibe he was... Can I have a good shot here? So, any kind man. You know, he was he was a perfect foil for the Billy Cobham album. The Spectrum. You know, because he kept it basic and bluesy when it was him and Lee Scalar basically kept it yeah. very straight ahead. Yeah. And then Jan Hammer and Billy Cobham went crazy on the on the on the on the other side. But you know, when I heard Tommy for the first time, it was an extremely eye-opening experience and it also taught me proof of concept that you can the blues is in everything it's also yes. it's also in 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 progressive music and you can be that foil yes. and keep it basic and not yes. look like a like musically like not up to par mm. with everybody else but um the first you know the first picture i the first person i texted when i when i found tommy's les paul last year was you yeah, and I said, you remember this one but I had, I had no, you didn't tell me you were after that guitar. No one knew, you know, and uh, I was so happy that that's found its way home. Yeah, I, I've been working on that for seven years. No I had, way. I had a lead from his brother in Sioux City, Iowa, and that the guitar had made its way back after he perished in uh, uh, Miami in 76, I believe. Yes. And, and um, he died in 76. It was never Tommy's Les Paul. It was it was it was his friend and confidant David, and 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 he ended up back in uh, Denver and then in right. Moab, Utah. 
Yeah, and that's where it, it just laid dormant for all those years. And um, but he but he had he did play it on Come Taste the Band, and I did see that guitar a few times. Yeah, there's some, there's some great photos of you and Tommy with that guitar. I, I yeah, think I think it's on an album. I think it's on a live album cover. There's you good. Singing. But um, yeah, it's 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 amazing. You know, it's it's amazing thing about like how many different styles of music all within rock that you've been able to introduce throughout your career. I mean, you've, you've, yeah. you've played with Trapeze, Deep Purple. We've, we've done our thing with BCC, um, you know, and all your great solo records. I, I mean, I love your solo records. And, Too you know, sweet. And so tell me, how's, um, how the, how the dead daisies? And, and, and I love the music, by the way, I love the new, the, the new <coughs> song. Thank and, you. Uh, just tell the folks who don't know uh, who, who's in the dead daisies. Dead Days, okay, uh, Dead Days is, is Doug Aldrich, of course, my dear friend from Whitesnake and, and Ronnie Dio. Mm -hmm. uh, on drums is Dean Castronovo, uh, Journey for Six Years or something like that. Great mm -hmm. singing drummer, you know, come on, yeah. great. And David Lowy, the Australian businessman musician, mm -hmm. is the rhythm guitar player, if you will. Right. David put this thing together. Um, I got a call from the manager of the band named David Edwards from Sydney, Australia, around NAM time 2019, to see if I would be interested in talking to David Lowy. Uh, we had a, a, a meeting at the Sunset Marquee uh, in the spring of last year about if I would like to, to jam with them. And I was just about to start an American tour last spring and taught the last show was Michigan in May of last year. He flew out on his jet um, with David Edwards and saw the show in Michigan. And we flew back to New York and Doug came out and Dean came out and we got together SAR privately. No one knew about this. Right. right. And we, 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 we played a couple of, you know, my stuff and a couple of cover songs. And uh, it was, I, I could feel there was something cool about it. I felt there was, ed it's edgy as well. Um, and um, I like the, you know, I love camaraderie and I like the fellas. It was interesting for me. And they asked me if I would, would like to come in and, and, and write songs and, and, and front the band and sing and do what I do. And, right. and, you know, and, and make classic rock music, which I'm that guy. So right. it was, it was an, an, it was a beautiful thing for me. You're one of the most prolific writers that I know. How many songs do you think you've written in your lifetime? Ooh. Published or written? <laughs> <laughs> just, I don't know. Probably, I mean, like probably, I mean, just recorded Glenn Hughes songs. It has to be in 500. Yeah, in the in that realm, and, and I, you work with me. We know each other inside and out when we write. I've, I write ten songs and show you one. It's like I, my brain doesn't stop. Um, so I write a lot of music that gets shelved, and somebody right. might hear it and go, "Ooh, we like this." But I write. I have no say in the matter. It's coming from somewhere else. I just write. I'm a songwriter. You summon the gods. I. Derek Shirley says, "I why something like that." I I I think Joe and I know I can say this. But you know your life's purpose is to educate people about 
playing the blues and blah, blah. It's just the way you're born. Yeah. And I am, although I was taken off the rails, and I don't remember the 80s. As you know, I, when I came back in the early 90s from my exile, if you will, um, I, uh, I, I figured that my path was, was been set for me to just write music. And, and 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 stay on the right side of the grass, if you will, and, and, and just keep singing and writing. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things uh, we were writing our the last Black Country Communion record, I, I had an idea for a song. And I, and I remember specifically asking you, and all the songs, just so everybody knows, that Glenn and I have written for Black Country Communion, have really been done in maybe an, an area that's about 20 square feet. It's just, it's, a, it's an Epiphone amp with a cable. Yeah. A guitar, a bass, uh, look and, we, and we write really loud. We, you yeah. know, we, we don't, we crank. And I remember there was a song that we were trying to finish, and I was like, what would an English person do? And you came up with these chords, and it was perfectly English, and you read exactly what was in my mind. And it's just because, you know, the musical DNA that we share, it just, it's just... It, Everyone is a product of where they well, grew up. Everyone's a product of where they where, where they're born. And when you when you put words together, songs together, riffs together, you have a, a sound that just you can't. It doesn't. It, it doesn't. You can't uh, help it. Joe, you know I love working with you, writing with you. It's such a natural thing. You come over here, and it's so natural with you. It really is. A, it was meant to be. And the guidance we have for each other, and um, we allow each other to breathe in that room. That room's all clean and ready now, by the way. Oh, nice. So we have, yeah, you had, you had some time off. Everybody's... I've had it all. I've had enough time to take stock of my studio up there. So it's great. And, and again, writing the music we've written, all these four albums together, it's a joy for me. We've never, I don't think we've had a, ever had a session where we didn't write something. Yeah, we've gotten something in every session. Yeah. I... You know, I remember you coming with Rest in Place and the idea you had for that and asking me what I thought about it. And I'm going, oh, wow, you know, you came up with, with two parts and, you know, you came up with that whatever it was. One day. Double neck guitar, and yeah. I, I'm going, you know, you were asking me my opinion and I'm going, Joe, just, just open it up and, and do it. We've never really thrown much away we 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 always come up with 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 great ideas you know always come up and we're very 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 generous with one another so um one of the things i wanted to ask you was when you were at the rock and roll hall of fame inductions everybody gets called up yes and they hand you the statue and they give you the microphone how how, my hat's off to you because the restraint that it would take to not go onto the microphone and go, what took you guys so long? Yeah. But better late than never. Yeah. But it would have been nice if John Lord was there to get his statue. You know, it was the same thing with Yes and Chris Squire. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's just, they, they seem to wait painfully too long where people that would, you know, that, that would, would just love the, just the validation on a life's work, you know, sometimes are denied that because of just this, I don't know, this, this, I, I, it's just this baffling amount of time that it takes obvious yes. rock fans to get in that have contributed actual classic rock songs to the Rock and Roll Hall mm. of Fame. You know, I'm I not mean, bashing it's, them, it's I'm just saying it's, it's a trend. No, it, I think it took three or four times it goes for purple to get through. But what I think you do, you know this, I've shared this, I haven't shared this publicly really. 
Well, my dad passed away that night he, back at home. He, 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 I knew he was he, uh, his, uh, dementia and he, he had not been well for a week. And mom calls me every day, as our mothers do. And she hadn't called me that day. And I, I didn't want to send, I just sensed something was wrong. And um, I was, uh, I didn't talk to anyone. Gabby knew about it, of course, but I didn't tell anyone about it. And I was a real, not my normal self, but up there on that microphone, I was just playing my specs to where I came from, you know, back country and born in, my soul was born in Detroit, blah, blah, blah. I, I was just really happy to be on that stage with these fellas I was in a family with um, and to get inducted into the Hall of Fame is quite an achievement for anyone. Absolutely. And we all know we've got friends who should be in there that aren't. Um, he, um, I was really humbled behind that microphone, uh, really, really humbled. And, and again, to continue what I've been doing for 50 years now and to have that achievement in my pajamas, by the way, it looked like I was wearing pajamas, right. was, was great. And, and David Cordell was, and I were holding hands under the really, 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 really tight. We've always been tight, but we were holding hands that night together. Um, it was great for him and I to be inducted with those fellas. Really great. It was, it was a great moment. It was a really great moment mm -hmm. to see see you holding the statue. And, and, you know, that to me, it's like, because you are a Hall of Famer and w with or without a statue, in my opinion, you're just, you're, you're a Hall of Famer. You, the music you've made over the years has, mm -hmm. has changed people's lives. It's influenced me and influenced so many. And um, final geek question, because I would be remiss alive from Nerdville. <laughs> so your original, the, the, the trapeze bass was a Fender Mustang. Bass. It was. And yeah. and I would I'd be remiss if, like my bass playing buddies is it, is it a Fender P bass or a jazz bass or a Mustang bass? What's what's your favorite bass uh, of all time? Well, like, what, you what know, would you play if that you only had one instrument? Uh, and I, I know you've been watching me on this, but I've got, that's that six. Everybody, Joe knows I've got a 1962 jazz bass with the original strings on it, with the price tag on the top. And Joe's told me, you can't do that. You're going to cut that off. Uh, I haven't even, you know what I got to do? You got to somehow, shall I, shall I take the strings off that and, and put some real strings on it and go for it? Or what? Would you leave me? Yes. yes, you should. Yeah, I should. Keep the original strings, put some real strings on it and play it. Because I mean, okay. that's, what that's what they're designed for. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean your, 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 your bass is almost brand new condition. Um, but you know, one of the things I always noticed with playing, it's like you can plug into any amp, a guitar amp, a bass amp, uh, an SVT, a car stereo, mm -hmm. you even directly into the console, literally you have a depth and a crunch to your bass playing mm -hmm. that, that only a few bass players have had. Tell me about Andy Frazier and yeah. yeah. And his influence on your playing, and and tell me, tell me your influences on the bass, thank because you. Thank, you know, thank you. Joe Satriani asked you to play on his record, and ninety nine point nine percent of the people, when they ask you to play on the record, they want you to sing. He goes, yeah. "No, I just want you to play bass." No, how, no. how cool is that? It's such a such a such a it's such a validation of how good a bass player you are. So tell me about your influences. My influences were, and seriously now, I remember I'm coming from the you know. Play trombone, then guitar, and piano. Last thing I played was bass. But 
as a, a 60s dude, a kid, sorry, that grew up listening to the Kinks and the Stones and the Beatles, if you will, in England, if you will, that generation of, of musical talent. And then by the time I started playing bass in 1968, uh, Zeppelin were coming out and the free had just finished and I, I was a massive of The Who and Entwistle. Who wasn't, yeah. by the way? Yeah. Great story here because in 19... Wow. 1970, the five-piece trapeze were playing the show in our hometown. We were not headlining. We were kind of co-headlining with a band called The Free, we thought. Right. <laughs> had not heard it, but it was before All Right Now, and I had not heard of, of the first Free album. We played a set. We shared the dressing room with these shorter fellas, you know, in Free. <laughs> Simon was quite tall. Uh, and I say that with respect. I love Paul and, and, and Andy and 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 Koss and, and Simon. We were sharing dressing room we did our set we thought we were great and of course free came on and i think i think it might have been i'll be creeping i i i couldn't get my breath with all four of them not just one guy all of them all of them yeah I mean, completely and utterly freaked in, in a respectful way. I wasn't frightened. I was going, thank you. Thank you for showing me this. Thank you for sharing me this. As a child, as a young man, I was thankful to see all this wonderment of musicians. Yeah. So from that moment, I became fanatical uh, fans of theirs before I became friends with any of them yeah. later on. So... You know, we did the Marshall 50th uh, 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 with uh, a bunch of guitar players, as you know. Yeah. I, I'd become friends with Andy because Bass Play Magazine editor wanted me to, to interview Andy and he interviewed me. He knew I was in Deep Purple, but he didn't know anything about my solo stuff. So we got together and he came over to my house and um, he had no idea I was a huge Andy Fraser fan. Right. I mean, huge and i'm telling him the story of asking him how we kept that sincere bass groove on i'll be creeping until about bar 34 when it james jameson thing i said do you remember that he went what right (laughs) i hadn't got clue but i like yourself you're a fan of certain guitar players or musicians in general and you know so much about them they've forgotten it haven't they but you haven't yeah. right. and i haven't either i yeah. look up to people I, I admire and say you remember that one part of that what what are you talking about well that saved my life at that time in 1970 that actually brought me around to thinking i gotta learn this right you're my teacher you know yeah. and and that's the way i've always been but andy fraser i got to perform mr big with him at Wembley amazing you know I flew Andy over to join my band and and uh to have him beside me to see him play and that solo come on come on come on you know you know exactly you know you know exactly what I'm talking about absolutely and anyone else out there watching this please to me this is the Bass player of in, in 
ever. James Jameson, Andy Fraser, and Paul Rogers, uh, Paul, Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney, Andy Fraser, and James Jameson wrote the book for me. Anytime I need to educate more, every time I deeply want to go within, I put it anything from those three gentlemen, anything, and I'm taking back with a gasp and not. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be taught. Thank you for what you've given to the universe. You know, and one of the things about bass playing, I'm a bass owner. I'm not a bass player. <laughs> and what always struck me about the way you play is you're, oh, you, you, you have such a left brain, right brain approach. It's like you're singing a counter melody and you're playing something harmonically interesting that is completely different than what you're singing. And I was like, it, it's almost like trying to solo and sing at the same time. You know, it's, it's, it's literally impossible. Um, you know, one of the things about Andy that I that always struck me was that he and Kossoff would be almost simpatico on the big sections. Like Andy would fret the chords, he would do the fives, and he had a distorted tone. And and then you listen to it all put together, it just sounds like this big, massive, thick, simple, you know, bunch of rock and roll. And and I just think it's to me, it's like, you know, looking back, you know, you go, that's a special time to, to, to have been able to see that stuff in its infancy and then develop and then have it influence you. It really did. I mean, people ask me all the time and you got to, and I know you believe this is sad, but I'll tell people that ask me some Who's your favorite bass player? I say Andy Fraser. Who? I'm going, I was really upset when people oh, don't know. Yeah. They don't know Andy Fraser. So please, I'm sure most people that are fans of yours and mine don't know Andy Fraser. And, and they know Freak and everything. You yeah. know Freak. It's, it's truly amazing. So I grew up again in the England, in England uh, listening to a lot of blues and soul music. My girlfriend's brother ran a discotheque in Walsall, W-A-L-S-A-L-L. And I ran the Coca-Colas for him all night. And he only played Tamla Motown. This would be 1966. So I was was 14 or 15. I was really starting to get into Tamla Motown. And that's where you, so you know, you know my influences. There's definitely in Detroit and Memphis. And, and, and you throw rock in there and and some, some groove and, you know, hard rock. It's Glenn. It's, and again, I'm grateful to have been, to allow myself, to listen to other great artists no matter what they do uh, i i gotta learn and listen to everything i'm always listening i'm always going to be taught every i want to go deeper within musically i I want to go deeper within as a human being and and for me to i'm teachable by the way there was a time i was not teachable right Uh, when i changed my lifestyle in 91 i became teachable again and ever since i've been all ears right well, Glenn, I love you. Thank you for doing this. And to me, you're like a very special person in my life, and not only personally but musically. And I love you. I'm I'm just really honored that you 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 wanted to be on my little my little inter, my little internet show, as they no, say. You know, Joe, I love you, and I, I'm I'm half joking, but I'm deeply concerned that you have not done any shows for a while. Um, I don't know. What, I'm test. This is the beta test for semi-retirement, it is, isn't it? You know, I mean, I'm 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 thrilled to have a break. I think I've needed a break like oh, this. For a while. Uh, but, but let me let me let me remind the, the followers out here. Joe and I had a conversation. It might have been lunch or, or or dinner in 2011 on the Black Country Community Tour. 
Where Joe said these words to me, I think I need a break. Right. That was nine years ago. Nine years ago. Yeah. You're getting one now. And I think you really, for me, as you know, I love you, David. You needed a break, darling. I know. And, and, you know, everybody, but Joe needed a break. Come on now. It, it, it saddens me that it took a pandemic and civil unrest and, and everything that's going on to, yeah. to let me see the light. But it, I, it's really it's really been the one thing. It's like, OK, I never would have did this myself, but I, I, I'm, I'm kind of forced to do it. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to take the time off and rethink and, you know, just basically, you know, get to know myself, not the guy yeah. in this and hopefully lose 20 pounds. Anyway. Oh, come on. You know, you, Joe, you, you'll get there, buddy. You always do. That's why I bought a bike. I'm going to ride today. Glenn, I love you. Thank I you very you much. Too, for being. And um, ladies and gentlemen, what can I say? The voice of rock. Rock and roll. Oh, you, still, member. I love you so much. Glenn Hughes, ladies and gentlemen. If, you. Was, if, if we were able to get a crowd in here, oh, I would give you a round of applause. Peace and love, everybody. Peace and love. Hope to see you again somewhere on the road. Cheers. <laughs>